number one. Did you know that this year? Yeah. Preseason. Preseason. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, with that, let's look in the book of Hebrews, okay? Hebrews chapter 6. Follow along as we read the first 12 verses together. He's coming out of obviously chapter 5 where he's been kind of disappointed that the congregation is not mature. They've not been moving on. They're immature. He says, therefore, however, let's, let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. He wants to press them on, urge them on to maturity. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we'll do this. Then he says something very very dire, very difficult. He says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those whom it is farmed, for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So we've seen that he's talked to them about their immaturity, their they have not been pressing on in the faith. He challenges them to press on in the first three verses. And then in verses 4 through 8, he poses to them uh, the very, very real, dire consequences of remaining spiritually immature. It is a serious thing. It is dangerous to remain spiritually immature. After he's called them to maturity in verse 1, he presents this serious warning, which we will study in verses 4 through 8. He doesn't want them to persist in settling for just the elementary teachings, the elementary things. There is for these people a very genuine danger of falling away. 
He sets that forth for them. And falling away even after having a very heavy exposure to spiritual experience. You can have a very, very, very heavy exposure to the church, very heavy exposure to spiritual things. But the question is, if we are not pressing on to maturity, is there the danger that I may fall back, that I may fall away? Those people who have shared in the very great and wonderful advantages and privileges of the church and the people of God, and then for whatever reason, renounce them or turn away from them, are probably the most difficult people to reclaim for the faith. That heavy exposure, extensive exposure, and for whatever reason, fall away. Those people are extremely difficult, if not find it impossible, to reclaim for the faith. In fact, he says it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. That's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? It's impossible to bring them back to repentance. How many times have you heard, or I've certainly heard this, more times than I, I, I would care to hear, people say, I tried Jesus. I used to be in the church. Oh, I was raised a Christian. And on and on and on, those kinds of statements. But they have, they've, Jesus never worked for them. The church didn't work for them. And, and they've turned to something else. And you try to bring those people back to to, uh, uh, to repentance, you try to bring them back into the life of the church, it is practically impossible to do it. There's a very real danger. We know that we can be inoculated against diseases, can't we? We have, we have developed vaccines, and, and vaccines essentially are, are made out of the same viruses and bacteria that cause the disease, but they're in a weakened form or an attenuated form. And so in a, in a real sense, you kind of get a, a very, very mild, mild form of the disease when they inoculate you, and that gives you an acquired immunity to that disease. So we understand that principle of inoculation against disease. I believe that it is possible that principle it follows through also in the spiritual realm. I believe that it's possible to be immunized against Christianity. I believe that a person who can be can inoculated with just enough Christianity to be immune against it. You have just enough visibility, just enough touch, just enough involvement. But you don't go any further. These Hebrews had left Judaism. They had moved in towards Christianity, but they hadn't moved far enough in. They hadn't pressed on to maturity. And so when the pressure comes, when adversity comes, it's very easy to back away. And once they back away, he says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. I think that when a person resists the faith, even having, having a tremendous visibility of it, um, they just become more and more immune to it. 
Now, this is the case of people who clearly see, they clearly see where the truth lies. And even for a while, they conform to it. They understand it. You explain it to them. They're part of the church. But for one reason or another, they fall away. I think of the parable that Jesus taught in Matthew's gospel, the sower and the seed, Matthew chapter 13. And he talks about seed that was sown on rocky soil. Rocky soil was soil that, that didn't have much depth to it. And it sprang up quickly. The fruit, the, 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 uh, the plants sprang up quickly, didn't it? Flourished quickly. You couldn't really, in the beginning, tell it from the seed that was sown on the good soil. You couldn't differentiate between the two. It was only when a time of testing came that the difference became evident. Isn't that true? When the heat of the day and the sun bore down on it, adversity comes against our life. See, we have a faith that teaches us that, that we have strength, it gives us courage, gives us peace in the midst of adversity, in the midst of difficulties, that the Lord is with us, that he'll carry us through, he'll see us through these things. And, and so many of us have experienced that time and time again. True? See, for these Hebrews, it was a time of testing. And the writer is anxious that they should prove that they are good soil, not just shallow, rocky soil. That the fruit that sprang up initially will indeed last. It's always a time of adversity, always a time of testing. What, what does adversity do to our faith? Does it make our faith stronger? Does it make our faith weaker? It should make it stronger. If we're persevering in the faith, if we are standing firm, as Jesus would say, if we are growing in maturity, adversity is part of that that is required if we are to mature, if we are to overcome things. Isn't that true? Sometimes adversity comes against us and uh, the temptation is strong to wimp out, isn't it? To give up, to go the other way. But if you understand that this is in our life and that God has promised to use it for our good, then we stand firm. We know that he'll see us through it. We won't quit. But adversity and testing and trials and struggles are the very things that prove our faith. But in some people who are, if you will, shallow, rocky soil, when those things come, for whatever reason, they fall away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now he describes a number of spiritual experiences. In uh, verses 4 and 5, he talks about having been enlightened. He talks about having tasted of the heavenly gift and sharing in the Holy Spirit and tasting of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Doesn't that sound like a, like a tremendous exposure to, to the things of God? I mean, you, you read those things and it sounds like, boy, these people have the Holy Spirit. They, they've got the word. They have tremendous experiences. They've had miracles happening either in their midst or uh, they participated in them. Um, been tremendously enlightened. Tremendous advantages. 
tremendous advantages. But you can have tremendous advantages, and those advantages don't make any difference for you. Do you remember the Hebrew spies? The book of Numbers, chapter 13? Right? The, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They are in the, in the wilderness. They're about a year, a little plus, year plus out. And God's getting ready to bring them into the promised land. And he takes them right up to the threshold. And he tells Moses to uh, uh, recruit one member from each tribe and send them into the promised land and to spy out the land and come back and bring an excellent report. So they're gone 40 days. They come back and they bring some of the fruit of the land, the, the, the grapes and the figs and the pomegranates. And, and indeed, their testimony is, yes, it's all that God said it was. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's beautiful. Let's go take it. Right? Not quite? What's the problem with my scenario? What's the problem with the picture I painted? It was all true up until what? Yeah, 10 of the 12 said, well, it's everything. Yeah, it's all that, but we can't do it. The odds are against us. The people in the land are giants. We're like grasshoppers. They'll eat us alive. They'll wipe us out. There's no way we can do this. Overwhelming odds against us. Only two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, man, let's go do it. Our God's with us. But the people believed the majority report, didn't they? Always makes you want to question the majority report. Isn't that true? <laughs> Just because the majority says it's true, it ain't always true. But the entire nation believed the majority report. They did not go in and possess the land, God says, because of their unbelief. Now, I want to suggest to you that the writer to the Hebrews here, to these Hebrews in this passage, may just have in mind those ancient Hebrews who, despite the tremendous things that God had shown them and done for them, they failed to enter that promised land because they didn't believe in the face of such overwhelming evidence. Let me suggest to you some very, I think, striking parallels to these five spiritual experiences he lists in verse 4 and 5 here that these ancient Israelites experienced. He says in verse 4, uh, having once been enlightened. I thought that interesting. Were the ancient Israelites enlightened? In a way they were, weren't they? Wasn't their camp lit up? by the pillar of fire that God provided for them, and that pillar by day and by night would direct them and protect them and cover them and provide for them? Interesting. How about having tasted the heavenly gift? Would there be a parallel for those ancient Israelites? Was there a heavenly gift that they tasted? Yeah, they tasted what is it? Right? Manna. God just fed them from heaven. Is there a, a parallel to the Holy Spirit, having shared in the Holy Spirit? There's an interesting verse. Write this down, and you can look it up later. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20. 
Nehemiah says that those people in the wilderness, that God gave his Holy Spirit to instruct them. So they too were sharers in the Holy Spirit. Did they hear God's word? Did they taste of the, the good word of God? Sure. Did not Moses give them the Lord's word? Thus saith the Lord, and set forth his word and his commands and so forth. He said that these commands are what? They're to bless you if you keep them. How about the powers of the coming age? Did they experience God's miracles? Sure they did. I mean, just coming out of Egypt, seeing the Egyptian army wiped out in the Red Sea when their back was up against it. The manna coming down from heaven. The water coming forth from a rock. God miraculously is providing for his people. These people had a tremendous exposure to God's provision, didn't they? Did it help them? No. They all perished in the wilderness, didn't they? They didn't go into the promised land, did they? They fell away. They, they God calls it unbelief. They just simply didn't believe. They didn't trust him. In spite of all of the evidence and all the testimony that he provided for them. Well, let's look at these, at these five spiritual experiences once again. And let's, let's kind of define them and gain some sense of what our author is talking about. Enlightened. This has to do with the intellectual perception of spiritual truth. Now these Hebrews, their Bible was the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in that translation, the Greek word for enlighten was fotizo. And it was translated many, many times to mean to give light by knowledge, to give light by teaching. It's kind of like you would say, let me enlighten you. Let me give you insight. Let me give you some knowledge. That's all simply it means. So they were to, they had instruction, they had uh, understanding, they were informed. But that word also, it didn't necessarily carry with it any connotation or any implication of response. In other words, there's no way of knowing that these people accepted or rejected or believed or didn't believe in what was taught them or what was revealed to them. They were enlightened. They were given insight. They were given spiritual knowledge and so forth. But that word fotizo does not have with it the, the implication of response. So we don't know exactly how they responded. An example would be Jesus. When Jesus first came to Galilee to preach, recorded in Matthew chapter 4, he declares that he's, he had come to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And that prophecy says in part this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now who are the people walking in darkness? The Galileans, right? They're in the dark, if you will. But Jesus comes, the prophecy says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
Who is the great light? Or what is the great light that they saw? Jesus. So all those people who saw, who heard Jesus, this great light, they may have seen, they may have heard, but they didn't necessarily receive him. Seeing God's light and accepting it are not the same. Isn't that true? You can have tremendous exposure. You can hear it. You can nod your head. You can say, ooh, ah, that's good. But it doesn't impact your life and you don't press on. You can be enlightened. Let's look at the other one, the second one. He says that they tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, what is the heavenly gift, do you suspect? I think the heavenly gift is is salvation, the gift of salvation through Christ, or the gift of salvation in Christ. Paul calls Jesus God's indescribable gift. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he talks about the gift of salvation. It is a gift of God, not of works that any man should boast. So I think the heavenly gift has to be salvation in Christ. So they tasted of the heavenly gift. Notice, they tasted, sampled. They didn't feast on it. Is there a difference? I think so. I think so. Jesus said, in John chapter 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Remember the manna that came down? But Jesus now is the living bread that has come down from heaven. He says, if a man eats this bread, he will live forever. Eternal life comes from eating, not simply tasting. Not simply tasting. I think that part of the pre-salvation work of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit's working in, in a person's life before they even realize it calling them, moving, convicting, and so forth. Part of that pre-salvation work is, I think, giving that unsaved person a taste of salvation. Giving them, wetting their appetite, if you will. Wanting more of the life that God offers. This is part of his drawing men to Christ. But again, tasting is not eating. The Holy Spirit will give us a taste but he's not going to make us eat. He'll give us a taste. He'll, he'll, he'll press it to our lips, if you will. Allow us to taste it. But then the question is, would we eat it? Will we take it in? So I think there's a difference there, and I think there's a, it's, a, it's a, a very significant difference, and I think someone who has tasted of the heavenly gift, it's not the same as having taken it in and, and feasted on it and continuing to eat on a continual basis. The third spiritual experience it talks about is sharing in the Holy Spirit. And uh, that idea of sharing doesn't necessarily carry the connotation of being possessed of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the Holy Spirit isn't possession of you, but rather has the idea of association 
There is some kind of relationship, but I don't think it is what we would describe as a Christian experience. It does not imply that these Hebrews had been either born of the Spirit. It doesn't imply that they were sealed with the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, or filled with the Spirit. There's no hint uh, by the use of the word there in the Greek that, that any of that is true. It's just very simply there's an association. There is some kind of relationship, but it's, it's not the kind of relationship that we're going to describe as Christians. I think these Hebrews had become sharers or participators in the Holy Spirit in the sense that they cooperated with him in that pre-salvation work of coming to repentance. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit brings us to that point of repentance. And when you participate with him, when you share with him, you willingly come to that point of repentance. But you've got to go on beyond that, don't you? You can't just stay there. You've got to press on in, and you've got to receive uh, forgiveness and uh, receive Christ. The fifth, or fourth, I should say, is tasted the goodness of the word of God. Tasted the goodness of the word of God. The normal word used for describing the word of God is logos. But there's a different word used here. The word is rhema. You've probably heard that word used at some point. Rhema has to do, rather than with the whole, it has generally, it, it talks about, it, it, or reflects the parts. You could almost see these people taking parts of the word, rather than embracing the whole of God's word. And so they tasted the good word of God. They, they had a little bit here, and a little bit there, and a little bit here but rather than taking in the whole and embracing uh, the whole word of God. They probably experienced much teaching, probably took it in with enthusiasm and appreciation. But one wonders if they could say with Jeremiah what he says. Jeremiah says, When your words came, I ate them, they were my joy and my heart's delight. I'm not convinced that these Hebrews were of that mindset. Tasting is the first step to eating, isn't it? To some degree, everyone must taste the gospel before he accepts it. But the problem is stopping with the tasting and not going on to eating and taking in the word of God on a consistent basis. And the fifth one is that they had tasted the powers of the coming age. Again, tasting of the powers of the coming age. They, they had seen miracles. If you go back in chapter 2, in verse 4, uh, the testimony there in that passage of Hebrews, when he talks to them uh, that they should pay more careful attention, their testimony there is that they, uh, they had seen the miracles, they had heard the apostles preach, that heavy exposure. Can you imagine just in Jesus' day, having stood there when, Mo, when, uh, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb? I mean, would that get your attention? That'd blow my mind. 
or when Jesus would cast demons out of people with a word, known demoniacs who, who, who people would just stay away from. And Jesus with a word would cast the demons out, and these people were all of a sudden whole. A person who was lame uh, with a word, Jesus would restore the, the, the limb. Blind people would see. I mean, exposure, tremendous exposure to the powers, the miraculous powers of the coming age where this will be common. Power of God evident. How could you witness those things and turn away? How could you witness those things and ignore Christ or reject the one who did them? How indeed? Explain that to me. I have no category for that. These Hebrews, again, had a heavy, heavy exposure to so much. They'd seen signs and wonders. They'd seen miracles. They'd heard the apostles preach. They had the privilege to behold virtually uh, all the manifestations of God's saving word and grace and mercy and power that he could provide for them. They'd heard it all, and they'd seen it all. Heavy exposure. Any kind of person who is so informed, so witnessed to, so blessed with every opportunity to know God's goodness, and then who they turn their back on it, whether for Judaism or for, for any other reason, it is impossible to renew that person to repentance again. They are lost. They not only reject the gospel, but the writer of the Hebrews says they, they crucify the Son of God all over again and subject him to public disgrace. I mean, just like the multitudes who followed Jesus, the multitudes who praised him. Just think of the thousands of people that lined the road coming into Jerusalem on, on, uh, in the triumphal entry. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest. Great praise. And just a few days later, what would they do? They would crucify him. They would crucify him and subject him to public disgrace. What the writer is saying is that people have such a heavy exposure who participate with such a, a rich testimony and turn their back, in effect, do the same thing that those people did earlier on. What a tragedy. In verses 7 and 8, we have this agricultural analogy. And in that analogy, these people are compared to land which, in spite of all the care expended in its cultivation, it refuses to produce a good crop. Frustrating. You pour your life into this land. You pour your life into this individual. And it produces not good fruit, but rather thorns and thistles. What a tragedy. There's a, a beautiful picture in Isaiah chapter 5. You might want to note that and read it later. It's similar to this one. It's again a, 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 an agricultural analogy. It's about, it's called Isaiah's vineyard song. And it describes the vineyard that had received all the Lord's attention. Of course, the vineyard was Israel, wasn't it? 
This vineyard had received all the attention that any vineyard could possibly ever have received. And yet when the time came for it to produce a crop, it produced not the grapes that the, that the uh, uh, vineyard owner was looking for, but rather it produced wild grapes. Grapes that were fit for, not fit for consumption or use. And the writer goes on, Isaiah goes on to say that that was clearly bad ground which would never respond to cultivation. It must be abandoned and made a wasteland. Again, tremendous similarity to the passage here in Hebrews. So our writer compares those believers who persevere in faith to fertile land which produces fruit. While those in whose lives the fruit of righteousness does not appear, they are compared to land which never produces anything but thorns and thistles, and in the end is burned up. What a tragedy. You see, he's saying there's great, great danger in not maturing. There's great danger in remaining spiritually immature. You can't settle down and say, well, I've grown enough. I know just enough. I know all about Jesus. I've got it together. You can't do that. Life demands maturity, doesn't it? If you don't grow up, if you don't mature just in life, isn't there a tremendous cost? You fall out of life, don't you? There are lots and lots of people who, who have opted out of the process of life. Trying to get them back into life is nearly impossible. Trying to get them back into a productive life is nearly impossible. If we understand that dynamic just on this realm, what about the spiritual realm of those people who refuse to be pressed on to maturity? And most of us have to be pressed, don't we? Not, not all of us are strong self-starters. We don't get up in the morning and say, all right, all right, I'm going to grow today. I'm excited for new opportunities, new challenges. I'm going to press through them, and I'm going to mature today. Not most of us do that. Most of us go, oh, man, somebody give me a push. Give me a kickstart. Give me a cup of coffee. Get me moving. Somebody, you can turn the radio on. Somebody read to me. And we're almost passively involved in the process. If you're involved in this church much at all, you know that, that we are, I, I, call, I call us a high-demand church. Not many people can handle Hope Chapel because we require growth. We're, on, we're always pressing for growth, aren't we? Maturity. Unwilling to, to let you just sit back and just do nothing. And most of us need to be pressed on. Most of us need to be challenged. There's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And we're only fooling ourselves if we do not press on to maturity. It will catch up. It will catch up. Life demands it. The second law of thermodynamics. It's, it's built into the universe. All the second law of thermodynamics says if you don't keep inputting into a system, the system runs out. What happens if you don't keep putting gasoline in your car? Your car stops running, right? Keep eating and drinking the appropriate amounts of food and water. This body stops operating. Spiritual systems are just like that. You become dead spiritually. We can't afford to just to sit and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm in, that's all I need. 
because you don't know what's going to happen in the face of adversity. You don't know what it's going to do to you, and you don't know that you won't bail. The classic illustration is marriage, isn't it? On the wedding day, don't people say, I do, I do, I do. <laughs> Till death do us part. I mean, you know, and presumably they mean it, right? But then a couple of years later, within the next few years, man, problems, troubles, adversity. It's tough. Marriage can be warfare. How many have discovered that? And how many times people who were fully intentioned till death do us part, how many times those people, when they reach that place, they're out of there. I quit. I give. They turn their back. And you can't get them back. See, the analogy holds true. The writer to the Hebrews has been talking to these Hebrews and pointing to their past, their forefathers, how their forefathers, because of their unbelief, tremendous exposure, which makes their unbelief all that more tragic, doesn't it? They fell away. The same thing is true. You and I cannot settle. You and I cannot settle for the status of our spiritual life right now. You've just got to say, I'm going to grow. I've got to grow. I've got to grow. I've got to be in a discipling relationship. I've got to be around people. I've got to be challenged to continual growth and maturity in my life. I do not want to risk the fact that I may fall away. Now let me suggest to you that the writer is stressing this. The proof of salvation is perseverance. Let me say that again. The proof of salvation is perseverance. Jesus said those who persevere to the end will be saved. He says it twice. In both contexts, in Matthew 10 and Matthew 24, are contexts of suffering, contexts of persecution. He says those who stand firm to the end will be saved. He's talking about perseverance. But people are running around today saying, they're, they're asking this question, and this is not the question to be asked, but they're asking this question. Can I lose my salvation? I've, I've been asked that question more times. People are saying, Pastor, Pastor, do you believe I can lose my salvation? I say to them, that is not the question. Here's the question. Am I persevering in the faith? Am I maturing in the faith? Am I pressing on in the faith? That's the question to ask. Not, can I lose my salvation? If you're asking that question, you're in trouble already. You're in trouble already. Because there's something going on in your life that's making you ask it. When in fact, you ought to be pressing on in the faith. Are you with me? This is critical. Lastly, I offer for your consideration this question. What New Testament person would you say would be a classic example of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8? Judas Iscariot, that's right. 
Didn't Judas have heavy exposure? I mean, he walked with Jesus for three, three and a half years. Judas looked so good. He seemed to have it together so well in the eyes of all the other disciples that he was the one they trusted with the money. Isn't that interesting? And yet in the end, we see that he falls away. Looks can be deceiving, huh? What's the proof of salvation? That we're persevering in the faith. And with that, I challenge you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would take these thoughts to heart, that we would look upon these scriptures, we would meditate on them, and Lord, think through the implications in the context of this entire letter to the Hebrews. They were in a precarious situation. But Lord, the principles that are addressed to them are addressed to the church at large. This constant call to continue to walk with Jesus, continue to, to grow in our understanding of who he is and our devotion to him, being committed to him. Lord, that when persecution comes, when adversity comes, that our testimony not weaken, but rather be strengthened, that our conviction be strong. Lord, that we not wimp out. Lord, help us to understand these things. Help us to take them to heart. Father, even as I pray this, I know there are still yet people within earshot of my voice who will not take heed. Lord, I just ask you, you, Lord, turn those hearts toward you, please. We give you praise tonight, Father. I love you and I worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have, a, we have a few moments before we will close the service. I want to invite those of you who would like prayer to, to come forward and I'd like to have our elders and shepherds come and just stand up here in the front and uh, be prepared to receive people who'd like to be prayed for. If you've come tonight, you're not a Christian, but you'd like to become a Christian, or maybe you'd like to reaffirm your commitment to Christ and to pray with somebody, this is a great opportunity for you to do so. If you have no felt need for prayer, then I'd ask you to remember that the service isn't uh, finished yet, and I'd like to ask you to take the prayer request sheet out of your bulletins and take these next uh, five to ten minutes, scan down that sheet, and uh, just say, Lord, how, who would you have me pray for uh, in these next several moments? Okay, we'll have the lights up just a little bit so people can, you can see those prayer request sheets. If you have need for prayer, just, just come on down and one of these uh, elders will pray for you.
Amen. No turning back. Amen. 